The following lecture was delivered at the 9th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. The keynote speaker of the 2013 International Conference of Shluchim, Rabbi Dov Greenberg, is the executive director of the Chabad House of Stanford University, a highly sought-after communicator of Jewish thought and spirituality. Rabbi Greenberg lectures throughout the United States, Israel, and Europe. He will now present a lecture entitled, Love Tales from the Talmud. So there's this fellow standing in shul in synagogue. He turns to his friend, he says, I have a 50th wedding anniversary coming up. So his friend says, really? He says, yeah, and on big anniversaries, I always do big things. So the friend says, what did you do on your 10th anniversary? He says, 10th anniversary? I bought my wife a beautiful diamond necklace. He says, oh, very impressive. It's very nice. He said, what did you do on your 25th? He said, 25th? Ah, brought my wife to Israel. Incredible trip. He says, wow, that's, that's very impressive. So what do you think you're going to do for your 50th? He says, for my 50th? I'm thinking to go back to Israel and pick her up. <laughs> So relationships, closeness, and distance. There's a fellow on uh, college. His problem was that whenever he would find a young woman that he really liked and would bring her home, the family would meet her. But his mother was always very critical. The moment she left, the mother would say, no, not for you. And she would have a whole list of critique of this woman. And this always would happen. So he goes to the professor of psychology. He says, how do I deal with my mother? No one's good enough for her. Whoever I bring home, she rejects. So the professor said, it's actually very simple. You have to find somebody that's similar to your mother. If you date somebody similar to your mother, your mother will have a different reaction to her. So he says, okay. He's walking through campus on Thursday evening. He sees a woman that looks like his mother. A carbon copy, a clone. He goes in, he starts to schmooze with her. Wonderful conversation. He likes her. And they get to know each other and things are going really well. Falls in love. Invites her home. The next day the professor sees him and says, "Knew no, how did it go? So he says, it was wonderful. He says, my mother loved her, but my father couldn't stand her. <laughs> so let's look a little bit together at love tales in the Talmud. There are many very fascinating stories. And most, by the way, are not well known. So we have time to study, to look at it, just a sampling of several stories in the Talmud. And I'll begin this way, just for contrast. There's a story called The Happy Hypocrite by Birenbaum. And this is the story. The story is there was a fellow, his name was Lord George. Lived in London. Wealthy person, successful person. But he was a narcissist. He was actually a selfish 
bad individual, very cruel. His external appearance reflected his inner darkness. So he looked unpleasant. He looked frightening, and he was a frightening individual. Anyways, Lord George is walking one day, and he sees a beautiful woman, Jenny, attracted to her, love at first sight, and he tries to court her and charm her. But she already heard about this guy, this Lord George, even though he was wealthy, but he had a reputation. She sees right through uh, his character. And basically, she sends him flying. He goes home and he's depressed. He's thinking about Jenny, and he comes up with a brilliant idea. He goes to the best mask maker in London. And he says, I want you to make a mask for me that's going to make me look handsome and kind. And I want the mask to be so perfect that when I wear it, no one can tell that it's a mask. And the mask maker says, okay. Pays him a great deal of money for it. He comes back a month later. He puts on the mask and he looks handsome and kind and you can't tell it's a mask. Perfect, perfect disguise. Okay. He walks on the street, he finds Jenny again and he talks to her and they have a nice conversation. They go out, she falls in love with him. He has the mask on the whole time, she has no idea. Finally, he proposes and they get married. He wakes up the first morning after the marriage. He has to pretend to be kind and nice. He has to keep the charade going. So he's pretending he's kind and sweet and sensitive. One day passes, a week passes. And he's the super mensch. He's like the perfect husband. And the story's coming to an end. And you think that's where the story's going to end. And on the last page, you have this unexpected turn. He's taking this nice walk with his wife down the boulevard. And some of George's old friends from his college days look. And in a moment, they recognize that this is a mask. They know their old friend under the mask. And they walk by George. They extends his arm and rips the mask off of his face. And the story ends by saying that his face changed. It became as handsome and as kind as the mask. His face had transformed. So we have to make it, it's like a Jewish story, the story. I don't know if Birnbaum was uh, a Jew, but here you see, what's the story? Conduct, the way we behave changes our personality. Underneath the mask of goodness, by doing good, like behaving like a mensch, suddenly your character changes, your personality changes. In other words, in the language of the Talmud, the Talmud says that a person should always act good, do good deeds, even even for the wrong reasons. Act kind for publicity, to get a good reputation for Jenny, be a mensch, for whatever the reason is. The Talmud says, always do the good thing, even if it's not for the right reason, And then the Talmud concludes, Because underneath the mask of selfishness, or for the wrong reason, ultimately you will become good. It will change your personality. So that's the story. Why do I tell you the story? Because the Talmud has a strikingly similar story, but more provocative. I would... Birnbaum's story is called the happy hypocrite. I think the Talmud story would be called the holy hypocrite. Tractate Sanhedrin, page 31.
Talmud says there was a fellow's name, Marukva. And Marukva was a big business person, but he fell in love with this woman who was married. And they did business together. The Talmud says he was so attracted to her, and because he couldn't express it, she was married, he became sick, and he couldn't get out of bed. He became lovesick. Then, this woman who he did business with, her businesses took a turn for the worse, and she became somebody who owed a lot of money, she was in debt. So she went to Mar Ukva and said, okay, if you give me this money that I need now, I will concede to what you want. I will, I will allow myself to, uh, to behave in the way that you want me to behave. She would compromise her integrity. That's what she tells if, if you give me this money, if you give me this loan. So, the, so Rashi says in Sanhedrin that right away he said, yes, absolutely. Here's whatever money you need, we have a deal, business deal. Okay? So Marukva lends her the money. She comes to his home when he's alone, knocks on the door. Marukva opens the door. He wants to now behave in an immoral fashion with her. But as he was about to do that, he realized the evil that he was going to do. He realized how terrible his behavior was. So the Talmud says, at that moment, he overcame his passion. And he says, you know what? You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me any favors. Use the money in the best way for your business. You can leave. And she said, okay. And she left. And then the ta- Rashi concludes that when Marukva left his home, people noticed something different about him. Ne'er doluk al min hashamayim. A heavenly grace, a heavenly flame rested on his face. His countenance changed. He looked like he encountered God. Ne'er doluk al min hashamayim. He looked different. So here you have a story in the Talmud which is actually extraordinary because there were over a thousand sages in the Talmud. But it doesn't say about the other sages who were pious and holy that their countenance reflected a radiant divine light. Who does it say it about? It says it's about Marukva. We knew what kind, he's a devious character. He was about to really do something terrible. So what was his great virtue? Not that he was naturally holy and refined, but he battled his inner urges to do what was moral. He himself was like Lord George. He was a despicable person. He was about to do terrible things and make others do terrible things. But he acted in a positive way. At the end of the day, he did what is right. So if we hear the Talmud is telling us in terms of relationships, in terms of human conduct, sometimes a person can feel, I don't feel love, or I don't feel godly, or I don't feel like a good Jew. What the Talmud is saying is that sometimes there's more holiness in the struggle itself. That sometimes to struggle against selfishness or unholy things, and to be victorious in that battle, even for that one day, 
there's a special divine grace that enters the person's life that is even greater sometimes than the perfectly holy and righteous person. Because the perfect righteous person serves God with who they are. It's natural. It's almost like inherited wealth. Somebody's wealthy because they inherited wealth. It's very nice. No one questions the wealth. But imagine somebody who doesn't inherit wealth. They needed to make it all on their own. It's a much greater achievement. So you can have a person who has inherited good characteristics, powerful soul, doesn't seek to do negative things. Okay, so that's very nice, holy. But the person who has to struggle with their negative characteristics, the Talmud says, and acts in a hypocritical way, in other words, you're not living what you feel, you're fighting what you feel, you're not only a happy hypocrite, the Talmud says you're holy. There's a special divine grace that changes and redefines the person. I mean, if you find this story, it's the same theme, but you see how this kind of notion in Jewish thought even changes not only the person's life, but history itself. You find the Talmud talks about Joseph in the tractate Sota. What was one of the greatest miracles in Jewish history? The splitting of the sea, the Sea of Reeds. Because before the splitting of the sea, the Jews were still under the influence of Egypt. Only after the sea split and the Egyptian army was destroyed were the Jews for the first time liberated and their king was God alone. So it's a defining moment in Jewish history. It's always in our prayers, daily prayers. The story of the sitting of the... So know what the Talmud asks? And in the Medrash, it says, in whose merit did the sea split? What a powerful, transformative miracle. In whose merit did the sea split? So the Talmud answers in the merit of Joseph. Now remember, by the sea there were many holy people. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Yocheved, many great Jewish heroes. It says, in the merit of Joseph. And the Talmud discusses this and the Medrash, Medrash Tehillim. What merit? Fascinating. And this is the subject of this discussion. Joseph, we know, was hated by his brothers. He sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's home, who's a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's house. Mrs. Potiphar has this big cr- a crush on Joseph. That's what the Torah says. She says, who is this charismatic, wise servant who rises, he's a brilliant mind, he's creating great wealth. Joseph was Ishmat Sliach, very successful. The only time the Bible uses the term successful person is about Joseph, Ishmat Sliach. So she, and the Torah also says he was very handsome. So handsome, wise, charismatic servant. And the Torah says she tries to seduce him. Mrs. Potiphar tries to seduce Joseph, not once, Day after day, the Torah says. It's right there in the hotel room. If you open up the drawer, you'll see a a, a Bible. Don't turn to the end, but in the beginning pages, it's all right there. It's right there. I'm not making it up. So, So one day, this is how the Torah says, very fascinating. One day it says no one was in the home except her. And you read the Bible, I mean the narrative slows down. It says he comes to his home, he comes, Joseph enters the home, only she's there to do his business. It's a pretty ambiguous statement. What, what, and then the Talmud has a discussion, what business was this? One opinion says, oh, you know, business affairs. The other was, right, sure. The, he went to behave immorally. Two opinions on the Talmud. But here's the 
powerful verse. He's in the home, and she not only tries to seduce him with words and behavior, but this time she grabs him. She grabs hold of him. And then the Torah says, and Joseph refuses to compromise his morality, and he flees. He refuses. What is the Hebrew word for, and Joseph refuses? In Hebrew, the word is, Vayima'in Yosef. And Yosef refused. Vayima'in. Now in the Torah, every word has a musical note. That often gives us the feeling, or the, almost the behind-the-scenes energy of what was going on in terms of the word. So you could read it in the text, the text, the mu- music note under the word, and he refused, could be, in English it would be, and he refused. What is the music note over the word, and he refused? It's, a, it's called Shalshalash. It only appears four times in all of the Torah. It's in the shape of a lightning bolt, and the signal, and the melody of it signals great ambivalence, and it moves back and forth. It can't decide. The music note goes back and forth. It only appears four times. Every time it appears in the Torah, it's about an individual, well, three other times. It's about an individual who's forced with a very difficult decision, can't determine what to do, and the decision is going to change their life. So over the word, and Joseph refused, in Hebrew it goes, Vayima That's how it's read. Or in English it would be, and he refused. What does that sound like? The Talmud picks up, the Talmud says, you know what it means he refused? It wasn't a simple thing. It was a titanic struggle. He almost didn't refuse. Because he was a young person betrayed by his family and his brothers. Now he's in Egypt, the first time in Vegas, no Jewish guilt, grandparents are away. And for him to refuse the wife of his master was dangerous. Because if she's angry, she can have him executed. This is ancient Egypt, like that. So not only was his biology a young Man away from home in Vegas, more than Vegas. Egypt was much more impressive than Vegas. Vegas thinks they're modern and they have new ideas. Egypt, they were better at everything. So every part of his being was... He was almost almost compromised. At the last moment, the Talmud says he overcame his natural instinct. That was that the Vayimai... The Shalshelis is singing the challenge. And at the last moment he ran away, but it was not easy. He did not want to leave. He broke everything within his nature. So the Medrash concludes, why did the sea split for the Jewish people? What is the nature of water? To flow. An ocean doesn't split. The Medrash says the ocean, the sea, saw the casket of Joseph and it said, wow, this person breaks his nature. Every fiber of his being was telling him, just do it. But he refused, he broke his nature. So the water said, the Jewish people are in front of us. Our nature is to flow. We're going to break our nature like Joseph. We're going to stand, we're going to transform ourselves. So when the Talmud and the Medrash say, why did the sea split? In the merit of Joseph, who broke his nature. So here you have in the Talmud a similar story to Mar Ukva. But it's telling us that when a person overcomes their own challenges, 
not only does, do they become holy and the struggle itself is something beautiful, sometimes you're in a room and no one else is there. And you're going to do a mitzvah or you're not going to do something wrong because you want to be faithful to a spouse, to a loved one, to God. But you think no one really knows the difference. Did anybody know what was going on in that living room with Mrs. Potiphar and Joseph that day? What did Joseph do? He did nothing. First of all, only God could give reward for doing nothing. Who else knows? You know, you really want to gossip and you don't. Who, who could reward you for it? Only God. But here Joseph wanted to do something. He said, no, I'm going to be loyal to God, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Jewish tradition. So from the story in the Talmud of Mar Ukva, we know the struggle itself brings holiness into a person's life. But does it have any effect on history? The Talmud is telling us a revolutionary idea about what moves history. Sometimes a private moral act that no one knows about will change all of history decades later. Joseph died. But God took that holiness and held it in a vault. And when the Jews needed a great merit for a seat to split in their life, it was Joseph's merit. Why, why not Moses? Why not Nuriam and Yochevet, other great heroes? Because sometimes there's greater merit if the person has to struggle. Sometimes to God it's more precious that you were a private hero and no one knows about it. Moses, a public hero, that's important. But sometimes the private heroic mitzvah is more meaningful and has more power to change world history than even the great leaders. So who moves history? You can have presidents, you have great leaders, but individuals with their private acts of kindness, of love, of dedication, of commitment, not only redefine who we are, but we change history. Another story. Different kind of story. Maise there was a woman and ma man who loved each other, married for many years, ten years, the Talmud says. Didn't have any children. They went to one of the greatest figures in the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai, the author of the Zohar. And they said, we've been married for ten years, the husband says. We're going to separate. Divorce. We don't have children. We want children. So he thinks about it. Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai. He says, you know what? He says, when you got married, you did it with joy and celebration, happiness. You're going to get divorced now? Get divorced the same way. Throw a big party. Do it with joy. People think uh, Gwyneth Paltrow introduced, you know, civil, um, uh, civil, what was her, her, her term there? Some uh, uncoupling, civil uncoupling. So the Rashbi here is uh, preemptor by 2,000 years. This notion of separating with kind of. He's telling them to separate with a party. Okay. So they go home. They have a party together. The wine is flowing. They're celebrating, they're having a great time. She gives him lots of wine. He's drunk. He turns to her and he says, You know, I love you so much, and you're going back to your father's house because we're separating. Take the most precious thing that I have in the house. You can take it, it's yours. But, uh, obviously, they were gonna, when they were separating, everything was done 
with uh, in, in equal fashion, but he just added to that. He said, you know, whatever you want, that's the most precious thing, you can take it with you to your father's house. So she says, okay. He's drinking, he falls asleep from all the l'chaim. She calls the servants and says, pick up his bed, carry him to my father's house. So they come, they pick up the bed. The next morning he wakes up, he says, where am I? She looks, she says, you're in my father's house. He says, what am I doing in your father's house? She says, last night you told me to think, take the thing that I love most with me to my father's house. Is there anything I love more than you in my life? It took you. He was very touched, over, he was moved. He says, let's go back to Rabbi Shimon Barichai. We have to have another, there has to be an alternative to this. And they come back with joy and with tremendous love and they tell him what happened. He smiles and he says, okay, don't get divorced. And he prays for them. And the story concludes, it's in Shir Hashirim Rabbah, the story, that they were blessed with children. You see, the man in the story was goal-oriented. He felt that the first mitzvah in the Torah is to have children. To have many children. Our Shakespeare says the world needs to be peopled. Right? You need to have children. You have to have... And if the marriage is not producing, even though we love each other, we need to end it because we need children. That was their kind of feeling. What did the woman understand? The woman understood that, yeah, children are wonderful and holy and important. No question. But love itself is holy. Just to celebrate love is holy enough. Marriage itself is beautiful. To be in a re- loving relationship is the holiest thing possible. That itself is. An, and when she expressed that to her husband, her husband said, you know, you're right. He understood that she was right. So they went back to Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai. And when he realized, or, or when he maybe brought out that love between them, they had children. In other words, they only were blessed by God when they realized how to celebrate the love that they had for itself, not for a means to an end. Once they were able to celebrate that love, they were blessed. Shneer Zalman of Liadi has a short, beautiful Hasidic essay on this tale. And he explains it very beautifully. And he says also the joy that they had that night helped bring down the blessings from heaven. But he says this applies to the relationship that a Jew has with God. A Jew can pray and ask God for things and that's fine. But when the deepest love is, when the Jew turns to God and says, I love you yourself. I love you God. You're the most precious thing. Not for something else. Just the relationship itself is beautiful. He says that's the highest love. And from that love, many blessings come. There's a thief who broke into a home one evening, steals all the silver and jewelry and everything. And as he's about to leave, he encounters the husband and wife. He has his big shotgun. He points it to the wife. He says, I can't leave any witnesses. I'm sorry. I just wanted the money, but I can't leave witnesses. I have to kill you. But before I do, what's your name? So she looks at him. She says, my name's Elizabeth. He says, Oi, Givalt. My mother's name is Elizabeth. You remind me of her. I can't kill you. I can't harm you. You're a lucky knight. He points the shotgun to the husband. He says, what's your name before I kill you? I don't need two witnesses. So he says, my name is Jack. My friends call me Elizabeth. (laughs) It's easy to share 
our name or our love in a time of crisis. It's easy to do that. But to celebrate love itself on the regular day, like this wise woman of Tzidon, to understand how to celebrate love on the regular day, to celebrate the blessings we have, not at great moments of crisis or triumph. Love itself, very powerful. This is beautifully expressed in Jewish law. Hanukkah commemorates one of the great miracles in Jewish history. Great miracle triumph. One of the greatest in Jewish history. Small band of soldiers overcoming overwhelming odds. The Greek invading force. How do we celebrate it? We light the menorah. So the menorah represents the greatest, one of the greatest, military triumphs in Jewish history. Shabbat. We light candles in the home. The woman lights candles in the home. What do the candles in the home symbolize? Shalom bayis, peace in the home. Love. That's what the candles of Shabbos are about. Love and peace in the home. That's what they represent in Jewish law. So the question is asked in Jewish law, what happens? And this was a very practical question for much of Jewish history. What happens if you only have enough for the menorah, not for Shabbat candles. They didn't always have abundance of oil and candle. You have one wick or one candle or two candles, only enough for the menorah or for Shabbat, not for both. What do you do? Oh, so you're right. But you would think, you ask a regular person, a normal person, not a Jew, they would tell you, of course, the great military triumph overrides a little bit of romance in the home. But that's not Jewish law. In Judaism, the Love and romance in a home between a husband and wife, nothing else, shines brighter than the greatest military triumph in Jewish history, the love itself. Shalom bias overrides it. That's how Jewish law is set up. Nothing more powerful than that. Contrast it with a... Uh, there's a story about... Uh, Somerset Mam wrote this story, celebrated English writer... It's a horrible story, but I'll share it with you because of the contrast. There was a woman, she's married, and she decides that she's going to write. And she writes a book of poetry, and it becomes a bestseller in London. Everybody's reading it. Now, this poetry that she wrote was filled with evocative, sensual imagery about betrayal, Stuff like that. And everybody was a sensation. She's winning awards. She's invited to this whole award ceremony one evening with writers and they're celebrating her great poetry. The husband, who's not somebody who goes to parties, is not this... His wife schleps him along, so he goes to the party. He's sitting in the corner uh, dripping, drinking some seltzer. He hears two famous writers discussing the book. And one says, I've read her book. I want to tell you something. There's no way a regular person can write this book. It comes out of real experience. You cannot make this up. This is real. I know writing. She had these experiences. The husband is listening to these famous writers talk about his wife. He flips out. He rushes over to her. He says, does this book come out of real experience? She says, please, don't ask such a question. He says, what do you mean don't ask? Tell me right now. She says, if you must know, it does flies into a rage. He says, it does. Do I know this man? 
She says, please stop asking me. I beg you, just leave it. She says, I'm not going to leave it. I demand to know. Do I know the person? She says, okay. You do know the person. He says, who is it? Tell me right now. She says, please stop. He says, I'm not going to stop. Tell me who it is. She says, you want to know who it is? It's you. It's the person who I married a long time ago. It's about you. So cynically, he says, it can't be me. I read the end of your poetry, the last page. The man, the lover dies. What do you mean it's me? She says, the person that loved me died a long time ago. So don't be too sad, it's not a Jewish story. (laughs) Judaism, it's very easy to fall in love. It's very easy to fall in love. What takes effort is to stay in love. You can't fall in love every day. You can't fall every day. You have to be able to walk in love, to jog in love, daily to celebrate love. I mean, Hollywood and the novels and the film and the songs, famous lines, right? They lived happily ever after. The prince and the princess rode off into the sunset. They lived happily ever after. You know what's strange about those lines? No one ever got married and lived happily ever after. It never happened and it could never happen. Why? Because marriage creates as many problems as it solves. What the, every, the story should end, they rode off into the sunset, they lived happily ever after with a whole new set of problems. That's real. Now you can work and deal with those issues and have a wonderful relationship, extraordinary love, but you can't ride off into the sunset and live happily ever In this world you can't do that. So the story, the woman of Tzidon, you can see when you read this story that they had a playful, loving relationship. And you see the wisdom of the woman in that story. She knew how to deal with the situation. She knew exactly when to deal with it. You're able to sense the love and the trust and the humor that they had in their relationship. But, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai conceded to it. And when the husband saw that, their life was changed. And that's expressed, like I said, in Jewish law. It's also expressed in another powerful Jewish law. The law is, Tadir v'she'enei tadir tadir kaidim. Whenever you have two mitzvot in Jewish life, one is, happens frequent, and one happens infrequent. So which one supersedes? The one that we do frequent is much more important. So normally we think, what's more important? The exceptional, the extraordinary. In Judaism, no, what we do consistency. To fall in love every day, to walk in love is much more important. So you can have a husband or a father or a mother that once in a while they go on a spectacular family vacation. Very expensive. But what's the relationship with the children like on a, every day? It doesn't really exist. Or you can have a dad who doesn't do a spectacular vacation. But tadir, every day there's a commitment. You can have a husband, very expensive gift. Special moment. But what's the acts of kindness on a daily basis? The acts of consistent love, of kindness, of goodness and sensitivity on a daily basis are much more significant. They make the real difference. A different kind of story. A story that begins with love and has a tragic ending. The only time in the 24 books of the Torah where it describes, well, maybe not the only time, one of these, one other time, Shir Hashirim, 
The only time where it clearly describes a specific woman with a name, talking about how she fell in love, is with the daughter of Shaul, Michal Bachao. Normally, in the Bible, when you read the Bible, we'll talk about Isaac loved Rebecca. Vayehev, we'll use the term that he loved or he fell in love. Jacob loved Rachel, you'll see the term. But in the Bible, even though you'll see acts of love, but it doesn't use the vivid image in terms of the woman. It doesn't describe the woman's emotions like it does the man's. The, the daughter of Shaul, the Torah says, Vatehev Michal bat Shaul and David. She fell in love with David. The daughter, so Saul was the king. He has a daughter who was very, a very special woman, and she was also very beautiful, the Talmud says. And she fell in love with David. It was love at first sight. And they got married. So here you have the only time in the Bible where it describes the woman's passionate love at first sight, Saul's daughter to David. Very nice, beautiful. Now we also know David loved her. David risked his life many times for her. He fought, well, a whole long story, time doesn't allow, he fought Philistines to make sure that he was able to marry her and risked his life. She also risked her life for David several times. I mean, there's one story in the book of Samuel where, where David's father-in-law, Saul, wants to kill his son-in-law. I mean, that's pretty... That's what, that's what happened there because he's jealous of David. So he sends assassins in the middle of the night to kill David. His, David's wife, Michael, realizes what's about to happen. She tells David to escape through the back window, and he does. She helps him escape. She tells them, oh, my husband's sick. She makes excuses. And then she puts a dummy in David's bed. The, and, the, and finally, after they don't believe her, and they break in, and they come in, and then they see David in bed, they think it's David. They don't realize the ruse till David is far out into the forest and safe. But then Saul hears that his own daughter has joined the enemy and is protecting the enemy. So she risked her life several times to save David. So you see real love and selflessness between David and Michal. Very beautiful. So far, so good, right? Okay. Now, here, the Talmud discusses this. It's the happiest day of David's life. He's bringing the ark with the tablets to Jerusalem, to the capital for the first time. Great celebration in the streets of Israel. Everybody's dancing and singing. They're bringing the ark with the tablets to Jerusalem for the first time. And it says, David is dancing with extraordinary joy. Great celebration. Dancing. And it says, Michal is in the palace. You see the narrative slows down. Behind glass. Cold, distant. She's looking at the celebration. And she sees her husband David dancing with joy. And she despises it. It says she just, in her heart she's filled with animosity. She comes from aristocrats, from king. She was an aristocratic woman. And here she sees the king of Israel dancing like a simple circus person, jumping all around with great enthusiasm, and she despised it. That's what the text says. And David finishes the celebration, high, one of the high moments of his life. He comes home. <laughs> what does she say? She says, what did the king of Israel do today? You danced like a buffoon in front of the people on the streets. What did you do? She really 
So I mean, just imagine, the husband's the great hero of the Jewish people. Thousands of years later, we still sing, David Melech Yisrael. He comes home into his own home and his wife. Boom! You're a ruffian. What does David say? David says to her, I was dancing before God. I was celebrating before God. And I'll even dance more. It was before God. And God took away the kingdom of Israel from your father. This God that I was dancing before is the God who took the kingdom away from your family, from your father, and gave it to me. Nice, good exchange between a wife who said what she shouldn't have said in anger, but she felt she needed to say it because it was true. And David said, gave it to her right back where she was most vulnerable. Her family was devastated, and David, boom, gave it right back to her. And know how the chapter ends? The next few words after that, and it says, And the wife of David, time passed, and after a while she passed away, and they never had children. She passed away later on, but it, the verse concludes, and she lived, and then she passed away. It doesn't say how long, a while, but the verse, that verse, and they never, they never, she, ne- the, she never had children till the day she died. And the Talmud picks up on it and says, the relationship ended. It crumbled. They, they were never intimate again, the Talmud says. After that exchange. So what went wrong? Here you have in the Bible... The story where it's the only time it describes the great love. And then the Talmud talks about how the whole relationship ended. Tragic. Was it because they were angry and they yelled at each other for 30 seconds? Was that the problem? No. Not what the problem was. You don't see anywhere in the story where they asked for forgiveness. They never asked for forgiveness. Certainly you say a bad word. You slip, you're angry, you say something you didn't... Who here didn't say something... That they, when we said it, we felt we needed to say it. But then the next day, why did I say it? So for that, you turn to the person you love, you say, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have said it. You ask for forgiveness. Everybody knows about Adam and Eve. Original sin. They sin. First of all, in Judaism, we don't have original sin. Why? First, because no sin is original. It's been done before, you know. It's been done before, it's been done better. We don't have original sin. But everybody thinks, what was the great sin? Adam and Eve, paradise lost. Why? Because they ate from a forbidden tree. They ate on a kosher. That wasn't the problem. The problem was God comes to Adam and says, Adam, what did you do? What does Adam say? Oh, the shidduch you made me, you know. This wife you gave me, not good, bad influence. So God says, okay, Eve, what did you do? Eve says, no, not me, the environment, the snake. We need tree control. Everybody's blaming each other. Not a word of regret or, oh, I'm sorry, God, you're right. I ate it. It looked so luscious. It was a big mistake. I'm sorry. If they, they were expelled from paradise, not because they ate the food, because they didn't apologize. The Medrash clearly says that, by the way. The Medrash clearly says that they would have apologized. Why was paradise lost? Paradise was lost not because somebody sinned. It's because they didn't ask for forgiveness. And that's what happens, the Talmud says, in relationships. Often you have a beautiful relationship. It's paradise. How is paradise lost? Not because somebody said something in anger. Not because somebody made a mistake. Because the person forgot to say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. I said something foolish. So paradise is lost. The home crumbles. And people don't say they're sorry. Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter who brought many to justice. 
wrote a wonderful book called The Sunflower. So he tells a powerful story. It's a great story. He survived the Holocaust. He was in a DP camp. Everybody was very poor. A friend comes over to him and says, can I borrow $10? A lot of money. I'll give it to you in two days. I'll return it to you. Wiesenthal says, fine, you have it. Gives him $10, almost all his money. Two days pass, the guy avoids him. Three days later, the guy comes and gives him an excuse. Okay, you'll get it in a week. A week later, another excuse. Two weeks later, another excuse. A month, excuse after excuse. A whole year passes. Doesn't get his money back. Finally, after a year, the guy comes running to Wiesenthal and says, Wiesenthal, here's your 10 bucks. Thank you very much. My visa came through. I'm going to Canada. Wiesenthal says, listen here. Keep the $10. For 10 bucks, it's not worth changing the opinion I have of you. <laughs> so sometimes we cherry. No, I'm not forgiving you. No, I'm not. I'm going to... Hold on to that resentment. Sometimes Jews feel like you hold on to uh, resentment. It's like vintage wine. It gets better. You know, oh, this is going to somehow bring joy to my life. The truth is, he knew he was wrong. He said it probably in jest. We owe it to somebody else to allow them to say, I want to be a different person. Because that's what we want. We want that chance too. That's the essence of the high holidays, of repentance. So that's what the Talmud is talking about in this relationship with David. And Michal, that did not happen. And then the result was tragic. In, in 81, 1981, Reagan was shot. And he was in the hospital. He, wasn't, uh, he was out of commission for a few weeks. A few months later, in Philadelphia, the, the sanitation department went on strike for a few weeks. You know what happened in Philadelphia? The whole Philadelphia came to a, a grinding shutdown. The hazard, the health hazards from the accumulating garbage. The city couldn't function anymore. The whole thing shut down. So imagine that a president, any president, you know, disappears for a few weeks, everything's fine. The garbage, you stop collecting garbage in a city for a week or two weeks, it's all over. Imagine there would be a strike in America in every city, no garbage for a month. You know what would happen? You can't imagine the health hazard, the crisis. Right? So it would be a... Okay, now imagine the same exact thing in your heart. Take garbage, resentment, grudges, hard feelings, you start to store it in your heart. One day, two days, a week, three weeks. That is hazardous to your health. The relationship will self-implode. So if you don't allow for forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry, you can't live. So often somebody says, why should I? You forgive somebody, not only is it good for them, but it's even better for you. Because if you don't forgive somebody, first of all, it's like allowing somebody to live in your brain without paying rent. You know? Why would you want that? But it's, you, a person cannot live, so we let go in terms of relationships to allow for forgiveness. That's the story of Michal and David. By the way, with Adam and Eve, it does have a happy ending. Because they only blamed each other when they were in paradise. Once they were expelled from paradise, the relationship changes. That's when he calls Chava the mother of all beings, and they care for each other and they build a family. When they were in paradise, they blamed each other and paradise was lost. They built a family. 
And they built all of humanity only after they lost paradise. They did learn to change. So that's actually interesting. Sometimes a relationship could be in paradise, but it falls apart because we destroy it. Sometimes a person can be out of paradise, but because of love, you create a new paradise, even better than the original one. So it's not where you are or the surroundings, it's what's the relationship. The relationship can build a new paradise. There was once a king who visited a prison. He went to visit a prison, and he went to interview the inmates. What did you do? Your majesty, I'm innocent, I was framed. The next person, Thomas, what did you do? Oh, I got the wrong person, it wasn't me. Goes to the whole prison, everybody was innocent. There was not one, a thousand people, everyone innocent. He goes to the last person, he says, Hey, Jacob, what did you do? Jacob says, Yeah, guilty. I was hungry, didn't have money on me. I shoplifted, I stole a loaf of bread. I'm a thief. They caught me, they put me in prison. The king goes to the guards, free him, he's out. Okay, they free him, but they say, King, you're nuts. He's the one guilty man in the whole prison. Everybody else is innocent. You free the one guilty person? He says, yeah, I didn't want him to influence all the innocent people. <laughs> but that is true in relationships, psychologically too. If we are always innocent, we remain locked in our psychological prison, the relationship can't work. I'm innocent. When we say, and when Jews do it with a song, you know any other people that comes together on the holiest day and what's our big prayer, a whole melody, we sinned, we're guilty, yeah, yeah, we do it all together, once, twice, crazy people. But that's, a, that's how, if not to remain in psychological prison, to be able to say I'm guilty but I'm going to start again, I'm going to rebuild a relationship with the person I love, with children I love. doesn't matter the wrong I did in the past, I'm going to fix it. Or with God, that's the holiest day of the year. That's paradise rebuilt. That's how we're free. Final tale. Famous, beautiful tale as analyzed through the mystical writings and the Talmud as well. I'll make it brief because of time. Rachel and Leah. Jacob travels away from home, falls in love with Rachel, Laban's daughter. Falls in love. Love at first sight, actually. By Yahweh, it says he loves her. Goes to his future father-in-law, I want to marry your daughter. Sure, worked for me seven years. You have her. That's how they did business then. Okay, he works for seven years. What happens at the end of seven years, the night of the wedding? Rachel had a twin sister, Leah. Well, the Medrash says that they were actually twins and their voices were similar. And their build was similar. They looked different, but there are many great similarities. The Medrash says that. But Rachel was the one that was outgoing and beautiful and charming, and Leah was more insecure. She wept a lot in the Torah. Her eyes were not as pretty. There were great differences. So he worked seven years for Rachel. The night of the wedding, Lavan substitutes Rachel, takes, moves Rachel out. Leah is under the wedding canopy and she's all veiled. That was the tradition then in ancient Mesopotamia. You couldn't see the bride. So Jacob ends up marrying the wrong woman. It's in the Bible. The next morning he wakes up, he discovers, you know, when it was too late, he discovered he married the wrong person. So instead of going to therapy for a year or seven years, he went to his father-in-law to try to work it out. He says, what did you do to me? And the father-in-law says, no, tough luck. Leah's older. That's just the way it is. Okay, fine. 
He ends up marrying Leah a week later, and they have the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, Rachel. No, so he, yeah, sorry, correct. So, he, so he's married to Rachel and Leah, and you have the 12 tribes. So you have in some of the mystical writings, and in Tanya, in the last chapter of Tanya, discusses this story as well, based on the Talmud. Chapter 52 of Tanya. It says, why is this story in the Bible? What's the message? What's the message in terms of a relationship? And if you think about it, we commemorate this episode by every wedding. Because the tradition is that before, under the chuppah, right before you go to the chuppah, the groom veils the bride. It's called in Yiddish, Abadekinesh, where he puts the veil over the bride. Why do we put the veil over the bride? So in tradition it says it's to commemorate the first episode, to commemorate the episode of a founding father of the Jewish people. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, he did not see who he was marrying. So to commemorate the episode that happened with Jacob and Rachel and Leah that night, there's the veiling of the bride. Okay? And that's, you go to a traditional wedding, you'll see that the bride has a veil and it's a whole... But this is a reason to unveil the bride, not to veil the bride. If anything, you should be an unveiling ceremony. Okay, it's the right one. Why are we veiling the bride? It's a strange... Why are we perpetuating the same thing? So it says something very powerful in the mystical writings. It says that Rachel and Leah are not merely two sisters, they represent two parts of every personality, two parts of every human being. Every human being has a Rachel and a Leah element within their hearts. Everybody has a charming, wonderful, attractive, good part of them. That's called the Rachel element. Then everybody has the Leah element, the insecure, the part that struggles, that's not so beautiful. Challenging. When a person falls in love, they always think they're marrying somebody that's only Rachel. Both the man and woman, they're in love, everything's beautiful. Then one day, could be a week or a month or a year, you wake up and you look at your roommate and you say, who on earth did I marry? I thought I was marrying Rachel. I ended up with Leah. I ended up with the wrong, who is this guy next to me? What, what happened? I thought I was... Somebody fooled me. I don't know who it was, but I ended up with the wrong... So the groom veils the bride. What's the message? The groom veils the bride. He's telling her that there's parts of your personality that are Rachel I'm attracted to and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But there's part of you that will ever remain veiled to me. There's parts of your character that are mishagas, idiosyncrasies. The groom also has it. The groom tells the bride the same thing in another part of the ceremony. There's part of your personality that I can't see now that I may never understand. It will always be veiled to me. I'll discover it maybe in a decade. But what, how do I love you? Do I only love the part of you that makes my life better, the wonderful part of you? Or is this wedding and this love about accepting and embracing the totality of your being, even your mishagas? Yeah, you're not perfect, neither am I, I love you anyway. The groom is telling the bride, I love and cherish and respect all of you, not only the Rachel, even the Leah element. And that's the key to a good marriage. If the love is coming from the soul, if the love is coming from the godly part that can be really selfless, then that's a true love, that's a powerful love. That's a love with humility, it's a love that knows how to say it's sorry. It's a, no, it's a love that knows how to act kind on a daily basis. That love actually lasts. So we're the most children, most of the 12 tribes of Israel come from Leah. Because similar to the Mar'ukva story, where a person is challenged and says, I'm gonna love anyway, that's where you find deeper blessing. 
more holiness. If you love somebody and it's easy to love them because they bring joy to your life, of course you love them because you love yourself. If you make my life happy, of course I'm going to love you. I love me. But if I love you even when it's a bit challenging, you do something and I don't... Where's that love coming from? That's about you, that's not about me. Where's that love coming? That comes not from the ego, from the soul. So real love, the real romance, the real blessing, the real continuity, real children. What really lasts, the deepest love is not the love that comes easy, but love that comes from the soul that transcends the ego. When you love the Leah elements of the spouse, that's the deepest. That's what really lasts. That's where God is. So we went through several stories in our tradition, anchored in the Talmud, to act kind and loving and generous, even if we don't feel it. Act good despite ourselves and we'll become good. That's true with God, it's true with children, it's true with our spouse. Always act lovingly. The story of Mar Ukva. Then you have the story of the woman of Sidon about to celebrate love and Judaism. Love itself is beautiful. The Shabbos candles remind us of that. Love takes time. It takes consistency. Shabbat is when we give it that time. The sanctity of love itself and then that brings blessings into the home and children. And to know that when we struggle in Birnbaum's story, the, after the mask is pulled off, he becomes a good person. The Talmud says that there's a godly life even as we struggle. You don't have to wait to become holy. The struggle itself generates holiness. And when we make a mistake, even when we have great love, ask for forgiveness. The story of David and Saul's daughter, paradise should not be lost. And when we do that, we celebrate for decades and years to come with awesome, wonderful blessings. Thank you.